Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom and this week we have a very special guest He's a researcher of anomalous, anomalous phenomena, and his name is Bruce Fenton. Uh, you may have heard of him. He's pretty well known. He's an author. He's, uh, ha he's been on uh, Ancient Aliens. He's been on Gaia. He's been on uh, you know, a lot of the shows that you'd see on the, here in America on the Discovery Channel and the History Channel and National Geographic. Uh, he's also the science editor for the Earth Ancients podcast. Uh, those of you who are loyal listeners know that Cliff Dunning, who the host of that show, was uh, on episode 50. Uh, so I, I commend you to that episode if you want to check him out. Um, but we're very happy to have Bruce Fenton in here. I, I consider him to be authority in the subject and a pretty big catch. So I was thrilled when he said yes. And Bruce, thank you for coming into the garden. Into the garden. Well, welcome, welcome in. I'm hearing Thank a little bit of an echo. Oh yeah, no, it's it's my pleasure. Thank you for that. Um, so Bruce, why, why don't you introduce yourself and tell the folks a little bit about your background? First of all, he's hailing to us from the from the UK, a little bit outside of London. Um, so, uh, but so there's a bit of a time difference, and that's why you might hear some echo and lag. But uh, in any event, yeah, tell tell the folks a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get right into it. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I've been um, 
we are based in the southwest of the UK, so if anyone's familiar with Gloucestershire, that's the county I'm in. Uh, the next county up in Wiltshire, where all the more famous ancient sites are like Stonehenge and Silvery Hill and the West Kennet Long Barrow. So anyone who's been to the UK to check out the sites will be sort of familiar with roughly where I am. Um, yeah, I've been involved in all kinds of research into extraordinary and mysterious phenomena for at least 25 years, uh, really ranging across topics, you know, from, of course, you know, aliens, UFOs, which we're going to talk about a lot today, uh, but across to, you know, everything from uh, the paranormal in general, you know, um, the pyramids, uh, lost sort of megalithic cities and jungles, you know, a really wide range. I've got an interest in all those things that lie just at the edges of the known and into the unknown. Yeah, it's sort of hard to focus on one of those without overlapping mm -hmm. into some others. They, yes. uh, they, they inevitably lead into one another. Um, yeah, they do. So you, uh, you wrote a book, uh, and it was called 780,000 uh, uh, Alien Origin Story. Um, and it, 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 so on, in that book, you have identified basically... 780,000 years ago as being maybe the prime event as to when aliens um, came down and, and uh, interfered with uh, our evolution. I, I saw that you made a distinction between chemical and biological evolution. I'll let you do, your, you know, uh, give your thesis and your conclusions better than, than I could. Um, that's a, you know, that's obviously way far back it's, it's further back than i've heard even from the you know eric von Daniken's uh camp and 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 some of the others um you know but uh, you seem very certain about the date so i don't know just tell us about your thesis how you came to the conclusion some of the uh evidence and information that, that led you to that and and uh you know i'm sure the folks who've listened to the show before have heard me talk about panspermia but if they're a new listener, and we do get new listeners, uh, you can probably do a, a primer on on all of it. Yeah, sure, certainly. I'll just very quickly say as well that yeah, there's seven hundred eighty thousand aliens. Sorry, that that's the Amazon Prime documentary, but it's based on the book Exogenesis: Hybrid Humans, so ah. which is also on Amazon, but on you know, Amazon books. I apologize, uh, I got those things backed yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's yeah, it's interesting because you know when you look across the the field of ancient aliens and stuff, usually the topic tends to um, begin with kind of written records. You know, you know, talking to what happened with the Sumerians or the ancient Egyptians, and you know, did, was there interventions in some of these cultures? But um, yeah, you know, I really am dealing with a, a time long before any written you know, written records or or mysterious structures. Or, or any of the usual kind of evidence that we see and um, put forward in the majority of books and in, of course, the, the TV show, you know, it tends to focus in that historical period. Um, the, I suppose, some exceptions, I suppose, I mean, if you look at the work of, say, like Lloyd Pye, if you're familiar with him, um, unfortunately passed on, but was a researcher that talked about, you know, the potential for a intervention in human origins. He, he did go a bit further back. Uh, and also, I think Sitchin, you know, although Sitchin focuses a lot on the Sumerian yes. time, he, he also did speculate that perhaps there'd been an intervention in the era of, sort of Homo erectus. So there's kind of, you know, little little nudges towards 
the deeper past in some of the more popular uh, ancient astronauts kind of lore. Um, but where it differs is that that's usually not in any great depth. You know, there's not any what I would call strong, extraordinary evidence put forward. It's, it's usually just sort of speculative that they think perhaps something happened in that very distant kind of caveman past. Um, what I do is really um, provide what I would consider to be quite solid evidence that something did happen. Uh, before going to that, though, yeah, I'll give you a little bit of a timeline, so you know how I see things having happened in terms of our human story and where I believe there's been interventions, even though in places they are hard to support and in other parts I think that they are relatively easier to support. So if you go back to the very beginning, of course, as you touched on there, there's the idea of panspermia, that life itself has come to this planet from out there in space, either in uh, an accidental event, you know, with perhaps uh, microbes traveling here on grains of dust, and, you know, showering down on the early Earth and giving rise to the first organisms, or what's called directed panspermia, where, you know, intelligent life has either brought an organism to this world to kind of seed it, or has perhaps fired out, you know, miniature probes carrying the seeds of life to millions of planets around the galaxy, you know, wanting to continue that spread of life, you know, perhaps a, you know, a dying civilization or something, who knows, but they could have seeded life around the, the Milky Way. So those are kind of the two competing panspermia models. Now, I, I tend to favour the view that, that this is probably a case of directed panspermia for Earth, and the reason why I say that is, if you look at how quickly life emerges here, it's quite extraordinary, because we now know the planet is about 4.6 billion years old, the best dating we have, and in some fairly recent studies looking at both fossil evidence and the DNA evidence, um, they find that the fossil evidence goes back to about around about 4.2 billion years, in the very earliest fossil that indicates probable life, um, and they think, well, it's unlikely that that's, that they've happened to find the very earliest. So they speculate that probably it goes back to 4.4, 4.5, you know, very close to the beginning of basically when the planet was formed, you know, 100 million years after the planet was formed. And um, bear in mind that initially this was like a, you know, magma kind of um, hailstorm going on. So it wouldn't have been very friendly for the first few million years. Uh, and then conversely, when they, they look at, they look for the, what's called Luca, the, the last universal common ancestor of all life on this planet. Um, when you look at that trace that back in the DNA um, studies, it's, it seems to point to an, an organism that was living around 4.5 billion years ago. So those line up fairly nicely with the, you know, with the, the genetics and with the fossil record. Um, but that really does make you think, well, hang on, that's really quick for life to appear here. Almost as soon as the magma is cooled and, you know, there's some kind of atmosphere, life appears. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that suggests a very slow process of ge geology and chemistry leading to biology. It seems more like a seed waiting to germinate. You know, so that, that's my suspicion. Uh, also, we have to ask the question, why is it life only emerges once? If life is simply something, an emergent phenomena that comes out from, again, from geological chemical processes, and if Earth is so well suited to it, why is there only one emergence that we can detect 
and that is the origin of all life on this planet. There, there doesn't seem to be a second case of abiogenesis in which you know life appears in some hot rock pool um, four billion years ago or three billion years ago. It just doesn't seem to happen ever again. And, and that again, that's problematic and points to there being just one event that causes all of this, and that would support the panspermia model. Okay, uh, that organism, the, the the oldest organism, does it have a name? No, but they, they sort of refer to just as Luca, just because that's the acronym for the last universal common ancestor. But it would have been a very simple, single-celled organism. It could have been a bacteria, or you know, something very, very basic, sort of single-celled, some kind of microbe. But yeah, they, they can't be too sure. They know that all the life seems to trace back to this one. You know, initial, very simple form of life. Yeah, I rem vaguely remember back to, I think, high school biology, I think paramecium or amoebas were sort of the, uh, the very primitive uh, early forms. Yeah, yeah, they filled the sea, the amoebas eventually sort of filled the oceans, and at least, you know, this is the, the model they have, and then, you know, they, they go on to give us more and more complex clusterings of cells and uh, you know, over time. But yeah, it seems to go back to this initial one form of life, something extraordinarily simple. But we say extraordinarily simple, but then we have to keep in mind as well that DNA is itself complex. So, I mean, <laughs> it seems like, you know, it's a really simple single cell thing, but then it's based on a really complex, um, you know, genomic code and a molecule with a structure that's really complex. So, I don't know that in some of the theorizing, you know, the chances of that molecule and its code coming about just purely by chance and you know needing each other to exist so it's all coming about at the same time is again just extraordinary odds against it happening which which i think should make people question you know whether or not it is a natural phenomenon uh, my suspicion is that dna is itself an alien terraforming technology an extraordinarily advanced terraforming technology that you can simply uh, spray some seeds, say some metallic seeds containing life, you know, out into space, and that this will land on a planetary surface and begin the process of converting it from a barren rock to a, you know, a, a biosphere which you can inhabit or utilize later. Now, if we're dealing with truly advanced extraterrestrials, you know, hyper advanced um, type four, kind of on the scale of civilizations that can build mega structures in space and move their own planets and you know all these things are theorized that if you your technology you know pushes ahead far enough over tens of thousands or millions of years that there is there's no particular reason to think they couldn't come up with something as extraordinary as dna right you create a molecule and a code which you can just spray down onto planetary services leave them come back you know later on and hey presto there's a you know planet with a biosphere that's my feeling again i mean we couldn't support that with evidence but then we haven't been able to support abiogenesis with evidence quite frankly and that's ex is the accepted model in universities around the world but we we have no way to really support that it's just the preferred guess so you can say my preferred guess is simply that that's wrong and that the evidence better supports directed panspermia but nobody can say for sure not yet sure and that's an interesting point that what's accepted can't be Proven or, or, or deproven, disproven either. No, no, it's just a best guess and it's the one that's become popular. I always think, well, how would our culture be different if we had selected for our best guess that aliens had sent life here, you know, and had taken my model 
and that we've taken that as our best guess, how would that have changed our culture and the way we think and the way we think about our place in the universe? Um, and, you know, would we have perhaps aimed a little bit higher if we all grew up with the belief that we had star family out there in space that perhaps were watching us and, had, you know, empowered us to become these creatures that we are? You know, it's a very different origin story, isn't it, to just the, some micro floating out of a, of a rock pool, you know, because of a long process of chemistry biology, which is not to say that's not extraordinary, but it's very different to hyper-advanced aliens seeding us here. You know, that if we had that as the root of our culture, I can't help thinking that perhaps we'd actually be um, maybe better, better people. It's certainly possible. Uh, it's uh, So this would have happened about 4.5 billion years ago. So, uh, I, you know, obviously there's been tons of forms of life since then, like, huge progression, you know, from, you know, all, all the different eras and epochs, uh, you know, some being more famous than others. Um, and so, you know, I don't know how you can possibly quickly take us from 4.5 billion yeah. to, you know, the, the last, you know, 3 million or 1 million South when there's yeah. sort of, uh, you know, hominins out, out there. Sure. Sure. I mean, the very big skipping through time of I, where I see important points are, because you have this, what seems to be a slow process of evolution happening. Um, evolution is complex. There's a lot of different things that make up evolution. It's, it's not as simple as, um, you know, we used to think it was just random mutations and natural selection. We know that's not really the case now. That actually, there's, there's a lot of other things going on there that we have um, uh, this, this, the horizontal gene transfer, you know, mixing of, of genes between different kinds of organisms. Um, there's jumping segment segments of genetic, genetic code that move around in organisms. There's all sorts of other things going on. So we now understand that evolution is very complex. So there's a lot happening. New life forms emerging. Obviously, there's breeding between, you know, divergent groups. You know, again, all these things are happening. So over time, we end up with lots of different life forms. Um, and when you get to around about the next interesting point is around the time of what's called the Cambrian explosion, because we have this period, hundreds of millions of years ago, where suddenly the fossil record seems to just explode with new life forms. Now, I would concur with some of the panspermia theorists, like um, Professor Wickham Singer, who you know have, have suggested that it's possible that at this point we have another, another case of, of information coming into the Earth system. That, you know, let's say another, like there's a rain of maybe alien retrovirus that has infected the life forms on this planet. That brings new information into the system. So suddenly you get lots of mutations, new life forms appearing. So that, I suspect that that is another example of either accidental or deliberate modifying of life on this planet. So that's another big kind of red flag or something strange. And then if you skip on from there, we get up to the, close to the, our hominins, which emerge about you know, about sort of seven million years ago, coming out of the kind of the you know the, the ape lines, primate kind of lines, um, that we have this divergence event there. At first, I don't find that the very early hominins particularly interesting. But if you get on to when you get to around about two million years ago, you have Homo erectus appears, and Homo erectus is fairly alike to us. You know, you certainly recognise. This is being a is a kind of human. You know, I'm not going to say that if he sat next to you on the bus, you'd probably get up and get off the bus. Right? <laughs> but I mean, it's it's recognisably of, of a human family. You know, um, the brain was quite significantly smaller. Certainly, initially, not much bigger than a chimp's brain. 
Um, but there, there's some really interesting changes that happen in the brain. We know that there's some genes that have, have sort of shifted, and it gives it um, a lot of neural kind of neural density changes and connectivity changes in the brain um, that really give it this kind of a, a leap. I'd say that there you have got a kind of um, a striking leap in this particular hominin and that brings it into a kind of a new level of, um, I would say, with brain power. And this brain also begins to accelerate in size. Now, I, I suspect that we have there a modification to that hominin. That this is a this is the one of the first kind of clear points where I'd say that there's been an intervention, and this is no longer kind of an ape man. This is a, a human, uh, and this is still fairly simple. Uh, but then the next big shift from there, so if you go from Homo erectus, Homo erectus spreads around the world. It's the first kind of global person, if you like, um, found all the way down in Southeast Asia, found in the Georgian Caucasus, in, in Africa. Uh, it, it's really sort of ranging all over the place. Importantly now is what we know that it somehow made its way out onto the islands of Southeast Asia. Uh, it's found on Flores and stuff that we have uh, remains there. And so a million years ago. So it's, it's quite, you know, it's obviously able to do things like cross bodies of water, right, and make, you know, relatively complex stone tools and stuff, um, probably handling fire recent studies have been fire could have been used 900,000 years ago or so so it, it's, it's still quite a lot of interesting stuff but then the next big shift where you know I'm particularly concerned with what's going on is this point as you touched on around 780,000 years ago and this is where my kind of focus has been because although those other areas we've touched on are interesting like you know the, the initial panspermia um, the, the Cambrian explosion the beginnings of Homo erectus there's not much smoking gun evidence on them, right? There's a sort of thing where you'd say, okay, um, you know, something weird's going on here, but they're, they're so far back that there's not a lot of evidence that we can get for them. <laughs> you know, it's just just how it works, you know, time's swallowing up all that evidence of anything spectacular, right? Sure. Um, but when you get to within a million years, you start to be able to, to get, you know, more fossils, and you start to conceivably get DNA evidence, and, you know, tools survive, all of that kind of thing. So you start to build up your evidence. Now, in my work, I found a particularly bizarre series of anomalies that point to extraordinary events around about 780,000 years ago. Um, for anyone who's not familiar with the period, one of the probably the best known events that occur around then is the last full geomagnetic reversal the Earth's fields, right? That's the, the last time there was a completed reversal. So we've had some wanderings of the fields and partial reversals, but that's the last time there was a total north-south flip. Okay. So that was so, when the pole, the polarity, South Pole and North mm -hmm. Pole basically switched their positive and negatives, and that happens periodically. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So that's the last one, because I, I've seen speculation that it's happened more frequently, but... Uh, that wasn't my understanding. You're sort of convincing me about, though I do understand that it meanders a little bit, and yes. and that's sort of why we have a tilt and a wobble from time to time. Yeah, and it's overdue. It's supposed they think that it generally would average out as something like I think it's every I might have this bit wrong, but something like every two hundred thousand years or so that on average, if you take it going back 
to the earliest that we can detect this change happens because you can detect reversals in rocks you know the the magnetic fields preserved in rocks that formed you know millions of years ago so you can detect where these reversals are happening so we're over on there. average it's something like about every 25 years so what's been kind of weird in a way is the fact that actually we are quite overdue for one so although one happened 780,000 years ago we should have had one sort of long before now um, yeah, there's some evidence that there was a near near complete reversal um, more recently, and that we have what may be the beginnings of, a, of another, you know, a full reversal going on now. We have seen some big shifts going on, holes opening up in the field and, you know, meandering. And so. so we might have another one happening, but they usually take, you know, sort of centuries. They can take millennia, they take centuries. There's some theories that they can move quicker. You know, there might be snap changes over a few decades, but nobody's quite sure. Um, but that is obviously a massive event. So we have this kind of massive marker event on 780,000 years ago. Um, interesting in itself, probably the best known thing, if I was to sort of Google 780,000 years ago, they'd probably, pardon maybe with my work, they would probably come up with articles about the magnetic field changes. But there, is a, there are a lot of other strange things that go on at that time. You know, there's, a, there's an article from... UK newspaper that talks about um, an anomaly that was detected in Antarctica, which suggested there'd been asteroid Im impacts there. Uh, and there was a bit more study done. And what they determined was that an object perhaps as large as the one that eradicated the dinosaurs had broken up coming into, you know, into Earth's atmosphere and it pulverized Antarctica and broken up and hit several places in Antarctica, and that the largest piece caused a hole about 200 kilometers by 200 kilometers in the ice. I mean, as you sort of think about that, that's just yeah. mind-bending. Yeah. Um, and that this this didn't cause the same level of, you know, extinction level event that the dinosaurs kind of experienced because of the amount of ice in the sea at the time. And so the sea ice absorbed most of the energy of the impact, which prevented mega tsunamis and stuff. And obviously as well, because it was hitting the ice, it didn't have the same kind of, you know, causing the same firestorms and stuff that it would have hitting, say, you know, North America or somewhere. So it was like a, it was like a heart locker. It was a, a insulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we, so we're quite fortunate in that. But this seems to have hit around about 780,000 years ago. Again, on the same point in time. And so you've got now, you've got a second major, you know, kind of chaotic event going on. And then on top of that, they recently found that in 2015 or 16, a German geological team had found that there's evidence that our planet was hit by asteroids from all sides around 780,000 years ago. And the asteroids had hit in, like you see in, um, Central America, somewhere in Asia, Tasmania, um, I think somewhere else, and that these asteroids had all sort of pummeled the Earth from all sides. Now, the first thing you'd assume, you think, well, okay, that's so odd, because, you know, we, every now and again, the Earth gets hit by a big object, you know, that's kind of normal, but what would be quite extraordinary is it'd be hit by several objects at once. Mm -hmm. So you think, okay, is it one object breaking up and hitting, you know, over a period of time? And they kind of explored that, but what they found was that the, the debris from these impacts is chemically different. So these have to be different, you know, unique asteroids coming in and hitting us, right? That is, that again, this is another extraordinary event. So you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, weird in itself, but then it's timed with 
something enormous going into the ice, you know, Antarctica, a, a full geomagnetic reversal of the planet's fields, right? So you're up to three kind of weird mega events, right, mm -hmm. already. Um, and then we have the, the, the fourth one, which we'll I'll tackle in a bit more detail, but very quickly introduce, which is that there is the appearance of a material called Australasian tektite, and that is a, a sort of strewn field. There's a massive debris field of this glassy material that stretches from sort of southern China all the way down through Australasia, down to Antarctica, and, and that filters over 10,000 kilometers of this black, well, blackish, brownish, kind of yellowish debris, glassy debris, um, which again, that's been dated, and we now have the most accurate dating on it is 788,000 years old. Um, and this is an, an anomalous field for reasons I'll go into more depth in a bit. But basically, you've got this enormous debris field which flags up as an anomaly. There's nothing else like it ever on the planet. Um, again, dated to that period around 780,000 years ago. So you're up to four really big, astonishing things going on now. Um, and there's reason to, to believe that that object, whatever it was, broke up in orbit. And I'll come to that why that is. So something that was in orbit around the planet explodes and leaves this enormous debris field at the same time as all these other things. Um, and of course, and then number five is that in recent studies of the human genome and our ancestors, Neanderthals, Denisovans, us, it's been determined that the the line of hominins, the sort of super archaics and the, probably Homo erectus, whoever it was that gave rise to us, that there's a divergence event, so a kind of a breaking away of the ancestors of Neanderthals, Denisovans, and us, which is begins to happen somewhere between 800,000 to 600,000 years ago that they start, they start to separate away from each other at the genetic level. And there's a number of changes going on that kind of mark this period where they're still kind of mixing, but they're becoming separate populations. And it takes a while for that separation to happen. But that is occurring in that same period that we have the emergence of the lineages that will lead to all of the large-brained um, hominins that gave, you know, could all create art, could all um, make you know, complex tools and glues and all sorts of things. Now we understand that they were doing, the animals were making glue and we could make uh, these complex tools. So we, we realize now that Denisovans and the animals and us probably were all you know, very intelligent, um, flexible thinkers, you know, that we, whereas we used to think that perhaps they were kind of, you know, dumb, amen. Obviously that view has changed, but we also now understand that their, their separation was much earlier than was for. It used to be, even a few years ago, it was understood that this separation event was happening about 500,000 years ago, something like that. Um, but with the discovery of Denisovans and then Denisovan DNA being extracted from from bones and also uh, the discovery of the, what's called the Cima de los Huesos site in Spain, which were the pit of bones and the Cima hominins, um, that their DNA was um, sampled going back to 530,000 years ago, the oldest DNA of a hominin that had been found. Can I uh, uh, interject for a second? And if you could... Uh, sure. Maybe given a, a inventory or basic explanation as to what these different hominins are. We're sort of going through Denisovan and Neanderthal mm -hmm. and Simi, and then if you could just say what each of these were to to the best of our understanding, anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, the most famous sort of human relative is the Neanderthals. So Neanderthals kind of emerge. Um, well, although they're thought of as being a kind of a European. A hominin cousin, a more bulky, um, usually thought more brutish, but certainly more bulky, larger skull, slightly more elongated skull, hominin, uh, built more sturdily than us, um, 
they actually turn out to have been based mainly in Asia, but they periodically invaded into or ranged into Europe and settled Europe. Uh, then we have the Denisovans, who were initially their bones were found in the Denisova cave in Siberia, um, hence the name, and they turn out to be um, another cousin who's closer related to the Neanderthals than they are to us, but again, you know, fairly closely related to us. And they, um, from what we know, we don't have much bones and evidence, but they seem to be a bit more gracile, a bit more slender built, and probably a little, probably a bit more like us. We're still not quite sure, because um, so little of their bones can be found, like a jawbone, um, a finger bone, and you know, a few pieces. It's, it's really difficult to say what they were like. But they, they seem to have been clustered in sort of East Asia, you know, from Tibet. They found some bones all the way down to. Australasia, where the people living in Papua and also the Philippines have got quite high levels of Denisovan DNA, up to about 5% of the genome. So it suggests that the Denisovans were in place in those regions when modern humans interacted with them, because, you know, that's the place we find modern humans today still carrying a lot of their DNA. So they were quite similar to us. And the Denisovans, they found um, a drilled bead in um, the cave in Denisova. Okay, which suggested that I think it was about 60,000 years old, 50,000 years old, that this, this small bead had been kind of speed drilled. And that's with that suggests they used bow drills where, you know, you have um, the drill bit and then a, like a bow for bow and arrows. You run along the side and, you know, so you can do fa fast drilling. So obviously not drilling with electricity kind of thing, but it, it was an advanced technology, more advanced than had been associated with modern humans of the time. So they may even be a bit ahead of us. Um, and also there's been artwork that's been found, carved stones from, I think about 70,000 years ago, they think is Denisova artwork. So they may have even been, you know, a little bit ahead of our direct modern human ancestors and somewhat similar to us in their physical build. And we, we interbred with all of these. So we've sure. got DNA from Neanderthals, we've got DNA from Denisovans and from other mysterious hominins whose bones we haven't found yet, right? So if people sort of imagine it, there's a kind of... Um, an initial event where we're all separating around about that, you know, 800 to 700-ish thousand years ago. Eventually, you know, we start separate off into groups and living in different areas. So obviously over time they specialize, you know, our, our physical forms adapt to where we live. Um, they have their own genetic changes going on. But then we'd sometimes collide with each other, you know, and there would be breeding and sharing genes and then they'd go their own ways again. So we have this kind of what now is looked at is rather than a, an ancestral tree, which is the old model. Now, now what the experts talk about is a kind of a braided stream. Which, if you think of like um, like a, a river basin of lots of streams interlocking with rivers and going off to major rivers and then splitting again to other streams, that's how we visualise now the human ancestral model. Because really, that's what's been happening. Different groups breaking away, they're mixing again, and then some die off, and they leave a little bit of trace of genes, some don't. So it, it's really that complex. But these are none of these should be thought of as, in my view, separate, completely separate species, because we are still breeding with them, and you can have children with them. And I mean, one of the experts in the field suggested it takes about a million years, he thinks, for a true um, species to emerge where you couldn't really, you know, interbreed. So there's not been long enough for that to have happened. Okay. You know, even if we've been totally separate from one of these groups from 700-ish thousand years ago, that's still not really quite long enough. But at no point are we actually separate for as long as that with any of these. There's, there is gene sharing across 
Eurasia and across Africa and across the world. So it's somewhat complex, but um, that's kind of what's happening with all these different hominids. And that's just the ones we you know, say the most famous ones because we found their bones. That's not to say there's only Neanderthals, Denisovans, and us. There's going to be a lot of these different groups, you know, some on an island somewhere that mm-hmm. become quite separate, um, others up in the mountains somewhere. So we just don't have all the bones, we don't have all the names. So this is all going on with this period after these major events. I mean, that's sort of the crux of it, is that if you think about it, so we have this other extraordinary thing happening, which is there seems to be an event in an ancestral hominin, probably Homo erectus, where it gives birth to not only one new line, but multiple large-brained hominin lines, which start to emerge around about the same time they have their, you know, their origins around that same time as all these events. And we know from the fossil record that there is a, a sudden acceleration in the cranial capacity of hominins around about 800,000 years ago that just really shoots up to where we are today. And you can see this on a chart. Anyone who looks that up, look at the, you know, the cranial capacity uh, hominins you know, increase. They'll, they'll see this. There's a lot of charts out there that show this. It's a really radical increase. So they've always known something extraordinary was happening with the human brain from then. And there's been all kinds of theories. You know, was it because we started eating more meat? Uh, was it some environment we went into? But nobody's really come up with a good answer. Um, however, if you start to look at genetics and the, you know, the genomics, and so, that what you find is there is some really interesting changes going on with our genes and with other areas of what's called non-coding DNA. So I don't want to too deep into that just yet, because I just say I want to get those five events that basically sort of overview that again. So we've got, you know, something massive going into the ice in Antarctica. We've got this enormous, you know, debris field stretching across, you know, a third of the planet or something. And we've got um, these these um, multi-directional impacts going on that hit all sides of the planet. Um, we've got this giant, you know, this reversal of the fields, and we've got this divergence happening in, in the hominin genome, giving us different life. So you've got now five major things that seem to be colliding in time, right? And they, they, this is extraordinary in itself. Now, one of the first things, without going any step further, just quickly say as well, one of the things that grabbed me once you, I pulled this together was, Christ, why isn't there like a Nat Geo show talking about 780,000 years ago, with, you know, this time of absolute bonkers stuff going on, even from a conventional, you know, perspective with no mention of you know, aliens or anything like that. It, it, it just sounds like this astonishing moment in time. And to think that our ancestors were alive for all of this, you know, it's why hasn't anyone ever covered it? You know, it's just, it, it, do you know what I mean? It bends my mind. Right. Well, you did, right? You, you got the show. <laughs> Finally, yeah. So yeah. I did. I'm, hopefully, one day as well, we may see some high-budget Nat Geo production, right? Because it, it lends itself to the visual imagery, you know, the CGI and everything of, you know, impacting objects and you know, all the rest of it. Um, but why? So why, from my perspective, this of course points towards aliens is um, somewhat more complex. I mean, some people may already be thinking, "God, that sounds so weird." You know, it must be aliens. But there, there's other reasons why I go, you know, more certain on that is because. If we look particularly at the at these uh, this anomalous material, this tektite debris, this was um, a mystery that was well, it's been known for a long time. Then there's also people written on it. There's ancient Chinese writings, but the first kind of what we call say Western science writing on this it is actually an essay written by Charles Darwin, which is kind of funny because 
here we are sort of dealing with, you know, I'm dealing with a human origin story. And it turns out the first person to write on this material is Charles Darwin, of all people. Sure. Um, and he, he theorized that it was some kind of volcanic glass that had been thrown out in a massive eruption. And that was, you know, that was his theory at the time. Now, since then, there's been all kinds of other theories. Some people thought perhaps it was um, an ancient Aboriginal glass technology that had been lost in time. Um, there was um, some theories that maybe there'd been a cloud of dust hit by lightning and it fused, making it into this strange glass. So there were all kinds of you know people speculating, different scientists speculating. In, in the end, by about the early sort of nineteen thirties and forties, it had been whittled down to basically four hypotheses. And these four hypotheses were that either um, there had been a, a huge volcanic event, either on Earth or on the Moon, right, and that this material had been thrown up on Earth with massive distribution, or on the Moon there had been an enormous eruption and material had been blown into space and it had reached Earth, or that there had been an asteroid impact either on Earth, probably somewhere in Southeast Asia, or again on the Moon that that had displaced this glass and sent it across to us. So there was these four theories, two lunar, two terrestrial. Um, the main proponents of the lunar theories were, were NASA scientists. So there's a, there's a lot of old NASA papers on this topic, which are really interesting and, for me, very useful, um, because, you know, obviously, you, know, you can't catch better than if you're going to look for some referring to some sort of strange space kind of theory. It's good to have NASA having looked at this. And then we have, conversely, we have a lot of, you know, uh, geologists and independent universities that, that have looked at the terrestrial side of it. So there was a kind of a mishmash of people arguing over how this glass had formed. Now, there's a, there's a few key points as to why they couldn't resolve this, because key points, you've got, you know, a, a kind of a pitched battle between the terrestrial origin and the lunar origin, and neither side can win because each one of these models can explain most or a lot of the evidence, but not all of it. And conversely, you know, another theory would, would explain some additional information, but then not be able to explain some of what's being, you know, tackled in the other person's hypothesis. So this was kind of raging on. Um, what actually happened in the end was that the material recovered from the moon in the, the early kind of NASA missions, that turned out to be incompatible with the chemistry of the tectites, and, and that essentially killed the lunar hypothesis, right? So they're like, well, okay, this can't be lunar rock that's been turned into glass. It just can't be. Um, so by default, the asteroid impact on Earth became the conventional, popular, accepted hypothesis. And today, if anyone looks up the origin of tectites, they'll quickly see that, you know, it's concluded that it's, you know, it's from an impact probably somewhere in Southeast Asia displacing this material. And that's why I find it. And if I say about this is an alien thing, you know, people who don't dig deep will go away and say, well, I read that it's just an asteroid impact, right? And that, that is, that, that's how they ended up the winner of the argument. It was a, a default by, a, you could say, a knockout of the opponent rather than, you know, that really they bested it. It was, in fact, the way I usually put it is, it's like a boxing match where one person has a heart attack Right, and the other one is 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 then crowned the winner, right? But sure. they didn't win in the way that we'd understand winning a fight. Right, it was a forfeit. 
Yeah, it's a forfeit because the other one just has had to pull out because something it's not it's not worked out. Um, the NASA guys, as they kind of left the field, if you like, they pointed out, they said, well, look, you have to explain some really extraordinary things here because, first of all, I think a few of the key points why that they say that this wasn't resolved. When you have an impact, a normal asteroid impact, and we obviously had lots of meteorites and asteroids that hit the Earth, you find the crater often will have some impact glass. An impact glass is, first of all, it's almost identical to the rock in the crater, <laughs> right? which makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you look at it chemically, and it's almost identical. There's very little change when it's melted. Um, you also find it's very foamy. It's full of lots of bubbles, and that's because it's rapid heating, very quick heating, very quick cooling. There's not time for the bubbles to actually move out through the liquid glass before it cools. So, so you have very foamy and you have part melt, you know, pieces of stone that have been partly melted and pieces of stone that are not melted, included in the glass, and organic matter like soil included in the glass. You know, these are all kind of characteristics of impact glasses. They're also usually found in the crater, near the crater, and within a radius of about 400 kilometers at the most. Uh, that's very standard. And we have, you know, I think it's a couple of hundred sites with impact glass that have been found. So we understand that quite well. Right? Now, the problem with the tektite is it's not like that. In fact, it's it's very what's called fine. You know, it's been through like we call the glass fining process. So people fill a glass. Obviously, we make glass in a crucible. It's heated for extended periods at controlled temperatures, and that allows certain chemicals to boil off. It allows you know, the gases to boil off. Bubbles are removed, and you end up with a very homogeneous, well mixed, homogeneous glass that's been very fined. And that's what we use in our own, you know things that we make today, from drinking ware to, you know, the specialist products, they're made in that way. So now, it's too perfect, is basically... Yeah, it's too perfect. So there's a problem, because then they said, well, look, you've got to explain how an impact, a quick event, where you've just got maybe, you know, moments of heating and pressure, can, can fine out all of this material, and the, the bubbles and everything, and there's no inclusions, there's no water, there's a missing water, you know, there's almost no water in the tectites, which is different to... Usually the um, impact rocks are quite similar to the amount of water found in other rock. Um, so there's always anomalies. They say, well, this is all suggests that it's in a prolonged heating event or something. Um, and then on top of that, there's a type of rock-like tectite called the tectite buttons, which people look up, and they'll see it looks like the nose cone of a ship, almost the front of a bullet or something. So it's very clearly being shaped by aerodynamic forces. Again, the NASA guys, obviously, they understood this. It looked like a nose cone. Uh, they, they they ran some simulations and stuff in the NASA Ames Research Center where they they replicated these buttons and they found that you had to take it to a glass sphere, heat it, at, I think it's about 2,700 degrees, and they, they put it under the forces of traveling at various speeds and they found that it would have had to form something just under um, the speed necessary to exit Earth's gravity, which is about 14.4 kilometers a second. So a bit under that, maybe 10 kilometers a second, which is extraordinarily fast, yeah. right? But, you know, it's a bit, but not quite fast enough to leave the atmosphere. So they, they know that it, was going to, it would have to be moving at an incredible speed, and it had to be heating at a, a fairly gentle angle of, of entry into the atmosphere, because when a, when a meteorite comes down from space, obviously at incredible speeds, they, they burst with the atmosphere and the outside becomes so hot that it evaporates away but the middle stays quite cool so you get you know when they hit the ground you know 
you've got quite a solid piece. They don't show a lot of melting on them usually. So like the front edge may be a bit, but they don't have a lot of melting because it's so fast. So the bit that melted is just it's boiled away, and then you've just got the hard core which lands. Now that's completely different to what we've seen these tech types. You can see that they've the front edge is melted and the glass has run back and they form this kind of bullet shape, this aerodynamic shape. The, the only way that can happen is if they think it's skipped along the edge of the atmosphere, essentially in a decaying orbital path, and then has eventually come down and, and you know landed on the surface, having melted and cooled again on the way down. So and the, the second point to that is has there been already a glass sphere? which means it's already been melted and cooled. So, and most likely in a very low atmosphere environment, i.e. space. So you've got something that has been turned to liquid glass in space, has then cooled into spheres, as liquid will in a vacuum, right? So you have these glass spheres that have formed somehow in space, and now they've come down through the atmosphere and experienced secondary melting as they come in and have formed these button shapes. Now, the NASA guys were like, well, this is a problem for you lot because you've got to explain how an impact on Earth is throwing up glass, first of all, find glass, and it's flying up all the way to space, and, and, and then it's traveling in again, horizontal to the plane of the Earth at these colossal speeds, so that none of that really stacks up. So the only way you can really see that is if you've got an object in orbit and it's breaking up. And these pieces are, are pieces of the molten mother body, and that then they are coming in and you know having secondary melting after cooling in space. So that just does not fit with an asteroid impact at all. And so this argument has been kind of going on in the the other papers for the, the what you said. The NASA guys kind of most of them are out to that point, but the, the others that have theorised that there was an impact, they've been kind of arguing and theorising for years since then how that could happen, because it's a problem they have to resolve, and they have not properly resolved it. They've come up with extraordinary ideas about, you know, would there have been um, an impact which caused a punch of a hole in the atmosphere, and that then there was a, a kind of a vacuum-filled um, plasma storm hole in it that threw material up into space, but even then, you've got to say, well, how, why is that material now coming back in at these weird angles and at such colossal speeds? And some of these chunks are, you know, um, I think, was it the larger ones down in Australia is something like, um, what's it, it's a few kilos, several kilos. So, I mean, you're going to, like, really quite heavy pieces, you know, not stuff that would be sucked up easily into the atmosphere in an impact, like, you know, dust or something. These are quite large pieces. And you think if they're traveling from Southeast Asia to Southern Australia, where most of the tectonic buttons are found, that, that just doesn't stack up. And in fact, the furthest you can have material distributed by a conventional impact is usually 400 kilometers, but sometimes up to about 1,000 kilometers. Now, remember, we're talking about 10,000 kilometers of debris, a debris right. field, 10,000 kilometers. So they know it can't be the conventional ballistic impact where you just throw off material through our atmosphere and it lands. It, it can't be that. They, they, they accept that because no matter how fast debris moves through the atmosphere, eventually the pressure ahead of it, the air pressure ahead of it, becomes equal to it, and it will just stop it and it will fall from the sky. And that happens within that thousand kilometers. So they know it can't do that. There's no speed that will achieve it. So it has to be traveling outside of the Earth's atmosphere. And so this this is raised obviously this way is um, it's called the Australite mystery. It's an unresolved mystery in science. Now. The more I've dug into that, the more I've concluded that there's only one thing it can be, and there's a few reasons for this, and that is that it's a vast 
silica AI technological object that is orbiting our planet. Now, this object is made of almost, um, it's about 75% silica. They, they know from this material analysis, it's around 75% silica. No asteroid, comet, or anything has ever been found to contain more than 60% silica. So in nature, that's just extraordinary. And it's also about 10% aluminium, and then a range of other metals, unusual metals. Um, this object had to be vast because it's left so much material across this huge debris field. So it would be absolutely vast, several kilometers across. If it was, if it was a solid object, at least, you know, a couple of kilometers or so across, if it's hollow, like a craft, it could have been miles across, right? You know, or many kilometers, <laughs> we switched between miles and kilometers. But um, something vast, right? And they know that to look at these debris uh, angles, that they suggest something in orbit broke up, pieces then continue in its decaying orbit, and they break the atmosphere and come in. That's, that fits best with the evidence. So what kind of object is that? So you've got this vast silica something flying around the planet right, in orbit, uh, and then it sort of explodes in space, and debris comes in. So to me, that's um, why I call it techno-signature. It's, it's a signature of technology. It, it, there's no natural object that should be like that, and the chances of such an object, say it existed in nature, that we somehow happen to capture that in our gravity, a planet which normally doesn't capture large objects, we capture small bus-sized uh, meteorites. Um, usually the, the, these kind of things, that scale might be called in by Saturn or Jupiter, or something, but we don't have any record of any you know, vast, large comets or asteroids you know, being able to be captured by Earth's gravity. So, so you'd have a guess series of extraordinary events that an extraordinary object made mostly of a glassy silica and aluminium that happens to be captured by Earth's gravity and then somehow explodes, right? So even if we were trying to say it was a natural object, this is an extraordinary object and a series of mind-bending odds that that would happen. Um, and that was noted by at least one of the NASA scholars who kind of, who kind of for a moment theorised, you know, what kind of object could that be, but didn't really go any further with that line of thinking, which I think we can kind of understand because we have a, a paradigm that limits the thinking, even of our greatest minds, because they reach a wall where it can only be, right, volcanic material or an impact of an asteroid. There's nothing else in the paradigm that that can be. Hence, we have a mystery that has lasted for 160 odd years, <laughs> despite having the best minds working on it, right, they can't resolve it because they won't take that final step to what if this isn't a natural object? Do you think it was a ship or do you think it was uh, something that was projected here? I think it was both a ship and itself an AI technology, a, what I would call a living craft. Now, I've got a couple of reasons for that. But I, part, first of all, of course, the silica content. We know that if you look at the leading minds in the field of speculating on what alien technologies might be out there. One of the things they look for is what called Bracewell probes, basically AI probes. They, they imagine that most advanced civilizations will utilize artificial intelligence, you know, living probes that will go out and explore the universe for whatever biological life is out there, like we're doing, right? Building robots, sending them out. So if you think of a hyper-advanced robotic explorer, it's going to be essentially an artificial intelligence that just can fly around the universe exploring the world. And if it's got a sentient level of AI or very you know, super AI, 
it can basically act as a as its own entity, you know, making contact or exploring worlds or doing whatever it wants. And being made from silica is essentially impervious to time and to, to space, right? So it's a kind of an ideal object. And that's why they expect these to be out there. Now, there's also there's a, a really good paper uh, called um, Alien Minds, if anyone looks for that, where there's um, some theorizing there on, well, what if aliens build, say, moon-sized AI um, you know, vehicles or probes? Because you can have essentially a, you know, almost godlike intelligence. You know, where we're limited to the, you know, to the brain capacity in our skull, right? But if you're not limited, if you're building a silica, um, basically a silica network, so a, a giant silica network, then you could you could have something conceivably a moon-sized object where the computational power of that is just mind-bending. That it, you know, it would be godlike in the process it could do, the thinking it could do, the understanding, the knowledge, you know, of a moon-sized brain that flies around the universe. Yeah. So I think it is a a living thing, like in terms of an AI living thing. You know, I don't know what we'd call that in terms of what we can call an, uh, a synthetic life form, right? But it's also, I believe, is a craft, and that is potentially as beings. On the reason why. I think that comes to that is that the story I was told when I first found out about this was that there'd been an Aboriginal, there's an Aboriginal mythology around some objects called um, the Churingas. Churingas are, there's your hand, uh, sort of handheld um, sacred object, a very sort of small object that allegedly were left here in the beginning of time, the creation time, when the first ancestors were created, and that these Churingas are essentially like living receptacles containing these beings, these Churinga beings that were here in the beginning, and that they somehow are alive and can transmit information, right? So you have like a living object, and this is, you know, look up, look up Churingas and the mythology, the lore around these. They're particularly held sacred by um, the, the groups of tribes that are around the Uluru region. So not all of Australia, but certainly around that region and some of the regions. And these, this story, again, sounds a bit like a Bracewell probe. So these objects are living, receptive information that can transmit you know, data to you. <laughs> because the funny thing, the same, again, if you look at the cutting edge of our science, they think that these Bracewell probes, one of the theories is that perhaps if they were left monitoring a planet, and there might be a point where they could make contact. So you could program one, say, you know, you take, go, you know, grab, explore, do this. And if you encounter a civilization of a certain level, like, say, radio waves or something, that that would activate its contact programming. Mm. That then it, so then it will make a direct intercession with that civilization. And that one of the things it might know is all the history of your species, all the history of your planet. Because if it's been sitting on your planet the whole time, or, you know, in orbit or on the moon, it's going to know everything about you, right? So they said the, the first contact with the Bracewell probe might be a download of our whole history. And this is kind of funny because what actually happened is that there was um, a very well-respected Aboriginal elder called um, um, Jerry Bostock and a, a European, well, an Australian of European origin, who they ended up involved with one of these objects and they had a series of experiences where the object made contact with them and told them, this is allegedly, and told them that there had been a visit to this planet hundreds of thousands of years ago by a living crystalline ship that had arrived here in orbit and had been destroyed in orbit. The debris, molten crystal had rained down across the planet 
and that the survivors of this ship had come down and that they genetically modified an early hominin to create the ancestors of Homo sapiens, right? So <laughs> that's really what started me off on this. Because sure. <laughs> I, I, read, I read what they said, and I thought, well, if this is real, then maybe there'll be evidence for it. And they talk about, in, in what they were told, they were told there was a, a planetary bombardment of, of asteroids hitting the planet from all sides, um, and that there was this, you know, obviously this emergence of new kinds of hominins that led to us. So I've started with all the solid science before getting to, because this is the bit people would say, well, that's the, the most woo bit. But then when you put it into the context of everything I've said before this, you think, well, hang on a minute. Because usually, a, you know, a fanciful story of woo doesn't lead you to any evidence, right? And that, that's the trend with channelings and um, contact experiences, is they never really go anywhere, right? right? I mean, you know, they're, they're wonderful tales, you know, tall tales like, like the, the, the one that got away or I saw a Loch Ness monster, but they, they don't really go anywhere. Um, so I thought, well, hang on, this is a real event. You've got giant silica craft exploding in orbit. Could debris exist from that? And you're being told, you know, that hominins were meddled with. Could there be genes that would suggest that's true? You know, um, if there's been impacts of the planet, surely we could find evidence of that happening as well. Um, so that's what really began my work. And I said to myself, if I couldn't find any of that, then there'd be no book to write, right? Because I, I don't need to waste my time <laughs> reading, like, writing a book which has no evidence, it's just someone's story, and I mean, they can tell their own story, they don't need me to repeat it. Um, you know, they, they have written up that you know, book, but they don't have any evidence. It's just what they said happened. Right. Like, so the, the myth is already it. there. You, you found it. You, uh, yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, I've read their account. You know, there's no point. There's no project in repeating someone else's thing. So I wanted to see whether or not it was real. That was the difference. There was so much detail in their account that I thought, well, actually, I could use that to attempt to validate or disprove it. And I was amazed when, you know, I found that actually there was this, this material, this molten silica material that had rained down across from China to so I'd never heard of it before that. And that's the other thing, you know, it wasn't like I had already knew this, was fitting it into the story. I, I'd never heard of this stuff. Um, so it turns out there's this long mystery, you know, going back to Charles Darwin and all this stuff. And, you know, scientists arguing over it for decades. Um, and then the other thing that was interesting was the, the multi-directional bombardment of Earth. That was only detected in like 2016. So these events, this contact case is from the 1990s. So they had no idea that that this evidence would ever exist. You know, it's not like you can sort of write into your story because nobody knew that, right? So that this vessel, found. was this vessel sort of breaking up as the Earth was rotating over the course of a day or more? And that's why it hit all over the Earth? Or were there more than one vessel, or I guess it could be either, right? Well, in the account, you said it's actually destroyed, it's blown up. It's, it's, it's literally attacked and blown up. But it would be an effect both of the explosive event and the turning of the Earth you know, as well. So potentially that would impact the distribution of it, You know, depending which way it was going when it exploded and the turn of the Earth. So you, that would help with the distribution of the debris. So we can see that it would have been, in my view, moving from... Southeast Asia, sort of southward towards Antarctica, because we know that the the analysis of the debris finds that the the microtectites in Antarctica travelled the furthest and were the hottest. And so that marks kind of the the end of the debris field. So the event itself 
happened, I would say, somewhere above Laos, somewhere above there. She's got some very big chunks of material in Laos. And that then the micro-tectites, they finish up in Antarctica. So the debris field stretched that way. So I think the craft was moving in that direction when it's hit. The debris field continued going in that direction. And it rains down across uh, Southeast Asia, Australia, and then ends in Antarctica. It's possible that, that some of those large objects that hit the ice in Antarctica that we mentioned earlier are the ship or large pieces of the ship. That's, that's possible. I find the timing of this huge hole in the ice at the same point in time just a bit astonishing, um, which leads me to suspect that large pieces of the ship may have gone into the ice in Antarctica. Uh, maybe. Um, it could even be still there. It could be the source of a lot of these stories we hear about Antarctica and something being dug up in the ice and why people aren't allowed to go to certain parts. And, you know, it does make me think, you know, when you, you know, the years you hear all these conspiracies about Antarctica, yes, and then I find that there's a debris field of this enormous material that happens to end in Antarctica. Um, it does make one wonder, like, and, if something could have been. Between. And within the last year or two, I can't remember, but it was revealed. I mean, that there is something down like 200 meters or something. That has what seems to be a hatch, and it, and it might be metallic, but there's there is some sort of what seems to be a structure down buried in the ice. Sort of, I don't know if it's as far as the South Pole, but it's in that direction. Yeah. Well, that would again, this stuff is, and I, you know, I don't get too because I can't say it's there. But the fact that we are told that there was a big impact there, and that now I know it's at the end of the debris field. Um, that does make me wonder. So we have, you know, when I found this information, obviously meshing with what this elder and this other, this lady who's a neurovice, kind of, a, she's a psychic um, and a healer. So you've got two kind of healers that have been contacted by this object and it's told them this is lost history of Earth. And again, you know, as I touched on earlier, that's actually what's expected in the theory of Bracewell probes is that it would probably know all of our history and make contact and tell us our history. And that is exactly what happened to these two people. They said the object told them you know, that there's a lost history and gave them a visual download of information and explained that there was all these things that happened and that we needed to know and it was time for everyone to know what happened um, and that this was basically you know, the moment when we're meant to know, I suppose contact, revelation, whatever you want to call it, an understanding of our lost origins and then it was giving them this information to, to go back out into the world. Who are these um, people? We, Sorry? Who are these these two people? So Jerry Bostock was a, a very well-respected um, Aboriginal elder and healer, sort of internationally known for that, but also a film a film producer, film director of, of sort of Aboriginal films. I mean, people can look him up. They look up Jerry Bostock. Um, so he was a he's unfortunately has passed on, but he was a very respected elder. Um, and Valerie Barrow, who is still alive, she's I think in the 80s now, who's based in Australia and is. Um, she's yeah, a psychic and a healer, and definitely sort of a new age kind of person. Obviously, her life's been quite transformed by all these contacts. So, so she she talks uh, events in Australia about you know aliens and things now. Still, because she's had these contacts and stuff in the past. Um, but yeah, so they wrote up what happened to them, and there was just a couple of people. In fact, there was more people involved, but you know they're the two main people in the story. You know, they had there was other people that went with them to a site called. Uh, the Gosford Glyphs in Carrion, where they had an experience. They had essentially a time slip. There was the two of them and another lady, a friend, who one moment they were there, you know, in our present. The next thing they found that they were looking down 
at the bay, a broken bay, and saw a ship, a craft saucer in the water, another saucer hovering over it, picking beings out of the water. And then they start to realize that they had somehow been taken by this object into a displaced time or into a visual representation of what happened. They had the object with them, uh, this Chiringa. And so the next thing they were seeing it, they could see the craft, they could see the craft that had come down from the mothership and they became aware of what had happened, that this had been the survivors from the mothership that had blown up and that they'd come down at this site just near the Gosford Glyphs, which is a kind of a controversial site in New South Wales, but there's Egyptian hieroglyphs and other symbols engraved into the rocks, um, which, you know, they, they suggest some of the symbols there were carved in by laser cutters that some of the beings had, and originally there was some alien symbols there, which have later been added to the Egyptian symbols and other stuff. Supposedly Egyptians came to Australia 5,000 years ago and carved some of these around. That's a whole debatable thing again, you know, another controversy as to whether or not that's true or whether the Egyptian symbols are modern. But again, that's another thing that listeners can look up, the Gosford glyphs, and they'll see the whole controversy about those glyphs. But that's the site where they had this time slip experience and saw some of the events that this object had been telling them about and could see where it had happened. Is, yeah, this, uh, is this related to the uh, uh, shamanistic or animism or the Akashic record, or uh, am I just conflating things? Well, the way I look at it, again, is, you know, with a lot of unusual or extraordinary phenomena, there's often two or three ways we could explain something, right? So, I mean, we could say this is past life memories, it's what they felt, okay? Or it could, it could be something like tapping into the field of the earth, into the the memory field, like the Akashic records, or it could be an alien technology projecting all this into your head, right? So, like the I, Matrix. I, I, yeah, I, I think that's something, well, assuming it's real, that there's there's different ways of explaining it, and how they experienced it may or may not be what it actually was, right. you know? So they felt it as like a past life experience, but it could equally be the object just beaming it into your head and letting you experience it as being like something you were there at, right? So, right. I mean... You interpret, say, but that's what they, they how they go. interpret it isn't necessarily what happened. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know, let's say, say open mindedness. When we do it, something so extraordinary. Obviously, the whole story is so extraordinary that you know, I, I don't want to sort of peg it as any one thing. You know, I think sure. it's enough to say. Cause, I mean, look, it's controversial enough. Me saying that a craft came here and blew up, and that they modified humans. So I mean, everything's controversial in this entire account, except for the science behind. The events, you know, that there's no controversy in terms of that objects pummeled the planet, or that there was a magnetic field reversal, or that something went into the ice, or you know, those things are not controversial in as much as anyone can go away and validate that those happened. You know, they can just go onto a search engine, look up the papers. You know, where it's controversial is that the reason why I found any of this was because these people said they had this experience, and that there was all these events that happened. So I thought I'd see if that was true, and I found that, that yes, there was a, a large object that broke up in orbit made of silica that rained down, you know, molten glass, or, and that, yes, there was, you know, something that, you know, uh, hit the ice and that there was a planetary bombardment, and that these key events that they describe are accurate. Now, I have no way to validate those alien beings, because unless we could find a fossil, you know, uh, or something like that, but you know, which is probably unlikely. I mean, it's hard enough to find human fossils from all the millions of humans that lived. <laughs> so, I mean, not many persist. But, but that's not to say it's impossible. We might find some 
piece of technology or something embedded, you know, in the ice or you know, you know, underground in a cave system somewhere. In that class. I don't say that's impossible, but for now, we can't directly validate these things. What we can do, though, is look for fingerprints and genetic engineering. And that's where um, I should I'll quickly leap to, because I think that's the key. The other key here is that, you know, we're told that this is our origin story. So, like, okay, if that's true, is there anything that supports that? Because I think that's the most fascinating part, in a way. You know, like, are we related to this? Are we something unusual on this planet? And it turns out that when you look at, at our origins, you find that, first of all, there's a very um, intriguing fusion of two chromosomes that occur in, in, in humans. So they have the, the chromosome 2 is a fusion of two what's called ancestral chromosomes. So we, are, we have 46 chromosomes rather than 48 that the other primates have. Uh, it's also believed that the archaic hominins, probably like Homo erectus and whoever else was wandering about, that they also had 48 chromosomes. So what's happened for us? It seems that around about this period, and again, around about 780,000, around about that, 750 to 800,000 years ago, that there is this fusion of chromosome 2. And we know that it happens around then because there was a, a British biologist who sort of, sort of wanted to know roughly when this happened. And so the first thing we know is that the, it, because it occurs also in Denisovans and Neanderthals and us, so it has to have occurred before those lineages split. Right? We now know that those are splitting in that period, like I said, somewhere around the 800 to 600,000 years ago. We know that that divergence is beginning to occur. So it's got to happen at least as far back as that. And he wanted to see, well, could it be back to the time of our divergence from chimps, right, and from that line? And so he looked at it in terms of the, the telomeres, the ends of the chromosomes, and when they fused and when they stopped their rapid, more rapid kind of mutations, because at the ends they are more prone to changes in the middle. Um, and again, I won't say I'm not, I'm not qualified to fully give you the details of how he did this, but he came to the conclusion that it's around about 750-ish thousand years ago, somewhere around there. So i.e. at the same time that all these hominins are emerging is when we have the fusion of chromosome 2. And, and at the fusion site, there are additions and deletions of information when compared to other primates. And we also have fusion on an active gene, a gene that's to do with the brain, the immune system, and the reproductive system, systems you might want to get at if you're modifying a hominin. Um, and on top of that, they also have found that there are, there's a, a number of other genes, interesting genes that appear around that time. One that, again, the way they describe it is, is a gene that's to do with, um, I think it's the, the, the neurocortex, there's a gene that they say appears fully formed out of non-coding DNA. Like just appears conveniently out of the non-coding DNA, a, a gene forms that's crucial to our brain. Now, and there's another one which is, I think, Argat to be, in fact, recently they put into a chimp or into a monkey and it grew a brain more like a human being. It was an experiment, I think it's about a year or two ago, you might have seen this. Yeah, in China, um, they're, they're, they're doing it now. And Yeah, 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 it's funny. We're kind of hitting the end of that sideline. And um, where, you know, we are thus, we've become like the gods. Um, and this, and then there's another gene which is described as it looks like they said it's almost as though you've taken out a gene, cut a segment, copied it, and put it back in. Well, that's what we're doing now with CRISPR, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And this is a crucial gene for our brain development. And it looks like it's a segment that's been clipped, copied, and put back in. And then there's, um, apart from just genes, there's what's really interesting. There's some areas of what's called non-coding 
DNA. I mean, we used to call this junk DNA, right. right? So everyone's heard of junk DNA. So we know today that junk DNA, although it doesn't code for genes, it does do stuff. I mean, some of it doesn't really do anything. Some of it is from ancestral, you know, species, and it's just it's just inert now. But a lot of it does do stuff, and it actually regulates other processes for like coding and stuff like that. Um, now, when there was, a, there was a guy who was kind of asked, you know, a scientist who was asked, like, what would we look for if, say, like aliens had come here and left a message in DNA or had modified us? But how would we know? Where would, where would we start looking for that? So, because the problem is, if it's in your genes, genes change because of mutations and stuff. I know the time, any information that was stored in the coding area in the genes would be would be lost because of the mutations. As he said, so it would have to be in the non-coding regions. And it would have to be in what's called highly conserved regions. That means regions that really haven't changed much over millions of years. They're, they're doing something so important that any changes usually mean the death of the organism or it can't reproduce or you know, something really fundamental and that you can compare those regions across many species and find they're all, almost identical. Right? So that's the most likely place to look for an alien message. Now, it turns out that a few years ago, um, a scientist discovered what's called human accelerated regions of code, where you've got code that has evolved faster than it was expected in these non-coding, highly conserved areas. And they found several hundred of these now. And I'll take one example because I know two technical people, but they can again look this up. The first one is called HAR1, first one they found, so human accelerated region one. Now they don't know exactly what it does. I think it, it, it may be something to do with the um, brain development in the fetal stage. So it's funny enough, several, many of these seem to be to do with the fetal brain development, which again, it's not very random, like loads of them out of the hundreds, the ones they understand seem to be to do with fetal brain development, which I think is you know, uncanny, but we're talking about the brain being modified in fetuses for a new life form. Kind of thing. Um, but this one, they compared it between you know, chimps, chickens, and us. And so you've got a 108 I guess 108, sorry, 118 letters long fragment, you know, code. So 118 DNA letters, which is quite short, a lot shorter than genes, so it's quite a short segment. And they compared it. So now the chimp and the chicken, those have been separate in terms of evolution. They've been separate for 300 million years, right? Vast period of time, you know, very different animals. Um, and now, they, they want to see what was the how much random mutation had successfully happened on that segment. And what they found was two letters had changed. So every 150 million years, there's a stable mutation occurs, right? and that's it. So really stable, you know, two two mutations in 300 million years. So if you're going to leave a code or anything like that, or signature of your work is going to turn up in those kind of regions. So when when they then contrasted. The chicken, sorry, the chimpanzee and humans, who are supposed to be separate by about seven million years, obviously hardly any time in this in terms of this, they found that instead of finding no difference, which was expected, eighteen letters had changed. So it was like, right. hang on a minute, what is going on here? This is, and they ran actually really found she is a um, a biostatistician who writes software to work out the statistics and stuff like this conveniently. And so she created a program to try and work out, you know, the chances of this. And basically it came up with 
there was basically a zero percent chance by any known evolutionary means. So it had to be something we don't understand about evolution to explain it. All right. Well, just simple math is it takes it to you know something like uh, two point seven or three billion years of, of time that it should have taken to uh, have that separation. Yeah. 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 Instead. And now they know that there's hundreds of these regions. So that's just one. That's a sort of striking example that they found hundreds. And they actually, there's a few articles. If people look for it, they'll say, what makes us human? They'll find, if you look for RHARs or human extended regions, what make us human? You'll find some articles on that. And also, is chromosome 2 what makes us different from chimps? Those, those are both understood as being crucial to what makes us you know, homo sapiens. Is chromosome 2, you'll find several articles about, you know, is that what makes us different? And the HARs, there's also several articles on, is that what makes us different? Because those changes seem to be, will give us everything that makes us unique compared to all the other primates. And both of them are anomalous. Both of them are not easily explainable by the conventional evolutionary mechanisms that we understand. So that, that again, should be striking to people, that the very things that they think make us unique among primates are also anomalous <laughs> just don't seem to be happening in other species at all right um and there's there's so you've got these kind of both these factors and then of course like i said these other genes genes that are appearing out of the non-coding dna segments of genes that seem to be cut and put back in and now you remember what we said earlier there's a sudden acceleration in brain size around 800,000 years ago known from the fossil record so we know this stuff is is happening around that time so basically bang on the time that we have this object breaking up and that we have this material that we have this this um bombardment you know all the things that are going on here align in time right in a short align period of time a lot a lot of astronomical events occur yeah absolutely and then you've got you know an Admiral elder and this, these other people having this experience with this artifact whose own mythology suggests it's probably some kind of alien probe type thing that, you know, the mythology is is their most one of the most sacred objects. The Aboriginal keep these things really secret, away from people. They're usually only handled by an, like a um, what's called a clever fella, who should be a shaman, you know, kind of a shaman, a highly initiated elder, be the only person who would actually directly look on or touch these, and it would only be brought out during a ritual event. And it was believed to contain intelligence, living intelligence. And was a, 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 a repository of knowledge and connected to the ancestors, right? So you look at the mythology of the object that has contacted them, and it fits perfectly with this kind of narrative from our own sciences, where we might call it a Bracewell probe. They might call that an ancestral spirit, you know, in a in a sacred artifact. And I think neither of those is a wrong description. I think that we're looking at a, a bordering of spirituality and science, where where you know. What would we call such a thing? I don't think it's wrong to call it a sacred spiritual living artifact any more than it's wrong for us to think of it and say, oh, was it a, a Bracewell AI probe, right? I don't think, you know, that's more semantics between cultural narratives, but the actual story around it fits very well with the expectations of our cutting-edge sciences for what an alien Bracewell probe left on a, what they call a sentinel probe would, would perhaps resemble, just an artifact maybe made of silica, you know, um, sitting somewhere, monitoring us, maybe, and picked up, you know, carried around by these people in the past, and then at some point it's contacted them, and they realise it's a receptacle of knowledge. You know, it's it's the most valuable thing we've ever found. You know, it can only be interacted with by 
these high shamans, you know, that they're able to, to deal with it. And, and again, if you think about the narrative there, someone pointed this out to me. They said, start sounding an awful lot like the Ark of the Covenant. Like, right? Because then you've got this story of this object. There's a communication between, you know, the sky gods and, and that, you know, he has to be carried out of a sacred box, can only be interacted with by the high priest. It's somewhat dangerous to people. You know, that it's, it's not a normal object that just anyone can handle, right? Um, and the Hopi with their tablets, it's about these tablets that were left by Pahani, the, the, um, the, the white brother, you know, that's the original, their friend brother from the sky. And, all this stuff. and you start thinking, well, hang on a minute. Did perhaps more than one of these things get left here? And that's why we hear these stories from completely different cultures, that there's artifacts that are basically what we might think of as bracelet approach, monitoring us, interacting with heads of some of these tribes, and that they, when they want to, they can reveal all sorts of knowledge and all sorts of history and all the rest of it. And for whatever reason, now one of them, you know, back in the 90s, activated, transferred this information, wants it to be out there, and, you know, hey, presto, um, you know, here it is, you know, we're talking about it. So, I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary. I think that it's meant to be coming back to my view that, that they want us to have our history and that it's in this particular moment when we look at the world, a very strange time, um, you know, all sorts of things are going on, you know, which many people see as, you know, an awakening or a revelation or apocalypse, you know, that we've got all these crazy things that have been going on for the last few years, um, you know, accelerating perhaps, that it does seem oddly fitting that we might have a contact with some kind of intelligence from out there in such a weird time in history. So, I mean, I can't help thinking it's somewhat synchronous in our time of greatest tumult and chaos that something might say, you know, it's time we let them know. Well, this is fascinating because, you know, obviously I, I had known about some of your work, but, you know, most of the, the stories and the stuff you hear about are, you know, more within the six, seven, five thousand years, or maybe go back to, you know, mm -hmm. 13, 14,000 years, you know, and then of course, Roswell and, and, and items like that. And you're really not touching on any of that. You're not ruling it out, but you're basically saying that, you know, uh, around 800,000 years ago, uh, you know, and, and then up to 600,000 years ago, the, the changes were, were started. They manifested themselves over a period of 150 or 200,000 years. And then, you know, we're, we're basically dormant either by design or, or just because that's the way it worked out, uh, you know, until certain people were ready to find it or, or stumbled upon it or the right people stumbled upon it. You know, if I stumbled upon it, maybe nothing would happen. But, uh, you know, somebody with the with the, the right mindset, uh, you know, could or whatever it was. Um, so you're not really arguing about uh, or arguing for it, you know, Atlantis or pyramids or, or even Roswell. Uh, yours is more of a, uh, you know, maybe there was a seeding long, long time ago, 4.5, 4.6 billion years ago. And then uh, certainly some sort of a, whether it's a follow-up or, or a different event, uh, you know, under a million years ago that, that sort of evolved, developed its own way. And then, and now we're sort of, getting getting to you know it's, it's becoming uh, activated now um do, mm. I, do i have that sort of right yeah yeah i would say so and i would say also of course that um this also fits a bit with the, the ufo topic and with some of the expectations of seti scientists i mean the reason why i say that is because well first of all look if, if you have these things flying around let's say some of the ufos let's say are 
alien technology or, or are something extraordinary. There's a lot of accounts that suggest it. Now, it's not proven, you know, but like it makes a lot more sense of them if aliens have already been here, right? And that they already sure. monitor this planet. Because one of the big arguments against that from the conventional scientists is, well, what's the chances that right now, when we become a technological society, you know, with um, our own spaceships and all the rest of it, that just at that moment, aliens happen to stumble on us from space, right? Awfully convenient. It just happens to be now. Um, out of all the billions of years that they could have arrived here or in the future could arrive, that they just happen to be when we have this kind of cultural narrative about space and aliens and, oh, and aliens turn up. So they find that just extraordinarily unlikely, which I understand statistically is very unlikely that in any given moment, aliens just turn up, right? But what they what they look at instead is that there's a much bigger chance and a much more reasonable chance that advanced aliens stumbled on us sometime in the last 4.5 billion years. Because, you know, it's, it's like the thing, if you go fishing, if I throw my line in and after... 30 seconds, I pull out and say, well, there's no fish here, you know, I've caught nothing. Or if I go out on my boat and I fish for three days, there's a much better chance I'm going to come back with my nets full, right? You know, it's just it's, it's just a matter of time. Right. So if you give enough time, there's a fair chance that if there's aliens out there, they notice our biosphere, send a probe, you know, whatever, um, visit us. So they tend to actually, so it's funny enough, Conventional scientists are more open to ancient aliens than they are to UFOs, if you like, in that respect. That they, they see it as being more reasonable they may have come. But their problem is they just say, well, we haven't seen the evidence that that's happened. So, but if we had, then that would make more sense of aliens being here monitoring us now because they've always been here, if you like. You know, they've been here since that first contact monitoring our biosphere because that our planet is implicitly interesting because it has a biosphere. And this is what you're saying, what's so special about Earth? Why would aliens care about Earth and humans? Well, we've looked out there and we haven't seen a single planet that isn't barren, right? So this argument that only human, you know, the humans are actually special, well, no, our planet is special because it has a biosphere. Mm -hmm. So if you look at it from a conventional view, and you know, if we ignore the possibility of panspermia, just assume aliens detected our oxygen signature maybe a billion years ago, that would be interesting. That's enough reason to send a probe, right? Right. They so, weren't looking for us. Yeah. They were looking for resources. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like resources and looking for interesting planets. You know, planets they might be able to live on. All of that. That makes it interesting. When you've got a galaxy that seems to be mostly full of rocks, if you see anything with life on it, that would be interesting. They don't have to wait to see when we have telescopes or send out radio waves. That, that seems to be an assumption a lot of scientists have that radio waves have only gone out for so many years they couldn't have detected us yet. Well, hang on a minute. The oxygen signature of Earth has been visible for a couple of billion years, right? So the fact that there was life here could have been known billions of years ago. Sure. That's plenty of time. Well, like, right? like the Spaniards were looking for gold. They weren't looking for Aztecs. Yeah, exactly. They weren't the people that lived there. Um, so you've got to think of it like that. And So, yes, if these beings are already here, and now my work suggests they were, then that strongly supports some of these interpretations in the UFO field in terms of the science that, well, yes, if they came hundreds of thousands of years ago, there's no reason why they couldn't have left some kind of monitoring grid or sometimes come back here. You know, either of those scenarios then becomes more reasonable because if you have evidence that they've ever been here before, right? And that's why I think this ties in closely to now what we're seeing in the UFO topic with a gradual slide towards the acceptance that there are something, see some physical anomalous craft flying around up there that are being 
detected by the military and you know allegedly on satellites and all sorts of stuff that that fits better with that model it's unlikely they've just arrived from space it's much more likely someone's been monitoring for a very long time because they've been here for a very long time Absolutely. and then we're reaching a technology level where we can see them sort of thing you know where it's funny because when you first described the uh, the almost the seeding the the the, the, the sentinels as, as you described them, uh, I, I you know I was picturing something that almost could be translated into the tic tac vehicles as they're described now that the Navy has documented and and you know you know basically is accepted they, they exist they all know what they are but you know in my mind that's maybe it's because I've seen it you know recently on on the the docu series uh, you know on on Showtime and uh, Netflix and, and and you know the news over the last few years and and obviously with this show I follow very closely and obviously I followed this stuff closely before otherwise I wouldn't have this show um, but um, that when you said that I I, orig- I immediately jumped to an image sort of o- almost like a a cylinder you know almost like a seed that could be embedded but uh, you know why not move around also yeah absolutely and if you if you look at say the work of um like Jack Vallée, for example, you know, like a lot of listeners may know, you know, he's obviously um, famous for his research into UFOs, but also appearing kind of almost as a, a version of himself is kind of shown in their film, is um, Close Encounters, the, the French ufologist who's based on Jack Vallée. So, but, you know, he, he came to the obviously for a long time, he thought, you know, maybe it was all just simple aliens from space. So, but he, he, he came to the kind of speculative understanding that perhaps what we were seeing was some kind of almost evolutionary grid or something that is evolving us, that this phenomena is, is more complex than there's aliens visiting us, that there's something about it that's shaping us, you know, an interface with some technology that's almost um, spiritual, hyper, real, you know, it's, it's more than just craft visiting us. And now if you put that again in the context of if there's being beings here that are, are to do with our evolution, to do with us emerging, now and that they interact they kept some kind of monitoring now are they also interested in our evolution in which case his kind of theory of that this is some kind of almost evolutionary system that again starts to make sense that maybe we are being nudged along by the phenomena that we're seeing that these not just the ufos but maybe some of the other high strangeness you know that happens, some of the psychic phenomena, the time slips, and maybe all these things are something to do with an, an alien intelligence that is, is set up some kind of evolutionary grid here, some kind of phenomena or technology that is nudging us towards some goal that they think we should reach, you know, whether that's becoming spacefaring or whether it's just becoming more conscious and more aware, you know, who can say? But that, I think, is intriguing for that direction of thought. Well, Arthur C. Clarke thought it was intriguing also, clearly, because <laughs> it sounds like a, the monolith sounds like a metaphor for uh, this writ large. Well, absolutely, you know, and I, I couldn't help, but when I wrote, I touch on 2001 Space Odyssey a few times because I couldn't help but notice that there was so many overlaps. And even the fact you have this black glass, you know, he has these black glass on this, and I'm doing this black glass that's rained down right across the planet. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's, it's basically an AI. It's a stand-in for the aliens. But essentially, it's an AI, almost like a bracewell probe. The sentinels are being left on the planet. They eventually, when they reach a certain level, it interacts with them, right? So you've got this black glass that's interacting with them. Um, and then the evolution of humans from it, right? So I kept thinking, like, 
what did he know and when did he know it sort of thing because I mean he was definitely an insider you sort of think about who this guy was and the people he was connected with and then you've got um, obviously oh, it's gone out of my brain now the, um, the producer sorry the, the actual director uh, Kubrick sorry Kubrick yeah who also again two very well connected people you know so you've got Kubrick and you know <laughs> you've got his kind of knowledge and I think that Kubrick was I think was um, more more benevolent minded that cared about people he looked like his eyes wide shut and he's kind of almost wanting to tell us about certain hidden things in his films right I think that he also knew a lot and I think that this was um, a message a communication I mean there's scenes in the film where we see like the the um, obelisk is shown as like a triangle you know like uh, almost a Luminati symbol type we have a lot of stuff that's thrown into the film right, right. Um, but I do I was left thinking did they know about this did they know about the tech type did they know about the evolution of you know, is this them basing a story around something that insiders already know and I know that's kind of conspiratorial and strange but there was just several places where I couldn't help thinking this is odd I mean there's also there's a story in Islamic traditions. If you look at the the the, the Kaaba, at Mecca, right, where you have this black cube, okay, which again, you know, reminiscent again of Kubrick's mm-hmm. work. But in the corner of the Kaaba, there's these fragments of stone, right, black stone, right, and, those, and that's where they go and they kiss the black stone, right, and, and, and that is the sort of holy of holies. Now that stone is theorized to be probably meteoric likely tektite right and, and that's kind of funny because you start, I mean, they look at the legend they say that this tektite was it was brought so it was originally white and said it came down it was brought to earth by is the angel gabriel and that it, it initially was white and it was turned to black by the sins of humanity and it was in the garden of adam and eve it was so it, it ties back into the, the Corasian time adam and eve Coming down from the sky, initially white, and this craft in um, the story that I, you know, I read from uh, the elder and from Valerie, they say the inside is a white craft. Obviously, it's been blown up. It's turned to this black glass. So there's this story of it, this this object that is from the angel realm, sort of thing, you know, that has come down and is in the garden of Adam and Eve. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, that's another weird load of overlaps yeah. there. And it's only oh, said he could talk, like you know, somehow he could talk. And I thought, well. Again, the living AI, this stuff, this living AI material that could talk, right? So it's a really funny offshoots. And again, we touched on before about some of the mythology of the Ark of the Covenant. So I just think there's hints throughout our history in different places that this story was known. And that, you know, I'm just, I'm writing up something that other people have known, that, you know, elders have known, probably insiders, you know, in the kind of New World Order circles, people have known. Um, there's there's rumours of a project called Project Garnet, which um, Linda Moulton Howe um, talked about years ago. Because when she first was, you know, if you, anyone who watched obviously UFO, um, it's familiar with um, Doty, Richard Doty. Like when he was working as uh, intelligence for the Air Force, he met with Linda Moulton Howe, the UFO journalist, and at um, an Air Force facility in the US, and. One of the, she had part of documents. He was supposed to be given her documents for a documentary she was going to make. Among the documents, there was one that caught her eye because it mentions Project Garnet, and Garnet was her birthstone, so it stuck, it stuck out. And it's got a for you know, for presidential eyes only. And it says that basically this project was to research the origins of 
of Homo sapiens. And uh, you know, from the, the course of the work, what we determined was that Homo sapiens were the result of alien um, intervention in an already evolving hominin line. Okay. And that's what she saw in the document. So I, I suspect that they do know, and that this is a known stuff, and that what we're doing is we're receiving a contact that other people already know. Ancient, you know, elders knew it. Insiders know it. People have seeded it into some of our films and into our stories, and that now we're getting it, if you like, direct phone call from the intelligence saying, yes, this is the story that you should all know, and probably that indigenous tribes and stuff around the world already know, and that we're just getting it as like time to catch up, you guys. <laughs> that's, that's my feeling. Well, it is a scary time to be alive, but I actually find the, the revelations about the, uh, whatever they call it, unidentified aerial phenomena, or, you know, that's the, the nom de jour. I, I find it to be rather hopeful, actually, I'm, I'm not mm -hmm. sure. And, I, you know, I don't know that if the public doesn't take it seriously, or if the public has sort of always intuitively known or has been ready for this, uh, you know, longer than governments think that we're ready for it, or the media, or whomever. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of panic about it. I mean, it seems like everyone's sort of excited. I mean, even you'd think that the you know clergy and churches would be all like, you know, freaking out about it. They don't really seem to be either, because I guess at the end of the day, if somebody created our DNA, well, who created them? I mean, it, it yeah. can still be the same answer. It could still be yeah. our, our, the Lord and Savior. So, I mean, mm -hmm. at, at, at the end of the day, you know, what started the Big Bang? So... I don't know, but it's yeah. I, I I go with that as well. I think that some people say, you know, and they'll say, oh, are, are you just kicking the can down the road? It's like, well, so what? It depends if you're interested in the can or the road or what you're interested in, right. right? Because I'm not trying to say that I have the answer to how life began in the universe, which is completely, like you say, it's a completely different topic. Sure. We're just talking about modifications to life and stuff, yeah. right? That how did the universe begin, and what gives us consciousness is a separate thing, right? And, um, but it's still interesting to know this little fragment of the story that's about us. Oh, that sure. doesn't mean it answers all of the mysteries or that it takes the divine out of the equation at all. And again, I think, you know, we're told God moves in mysterious ways and he's using the tools of all of these beings, these things, right, are all tools of God. A angels, aliens, whatever. We want to give names to these different things, right? That I think that we have to expand our cosmology <laughs> and expand our terminology and start to think, well, hang on a minute, maybe what we call, you know, aliens, what we call angels, what we call things, that we don't really have a way to categorize them beyond those terms. Sure. But all we know is that there are extraordinary forces at work, and that some of those do good, some of them do what we would call bad, and that there's some kind of conflicting between some of these forces, um, and that they have had roles on this planet, you know, if you look at the biblical stories, you know, beings that came down and saw the daughters of men were good, you know, all this stuff. We have all these stories of interventions, manipulations, <laughs> even the spiritual tradition, right? right. So, for the, for the religious tradition, I don't think they have a problem. I think the only people that have a problem with this, I don't think it's you and I, or Joe Public, for the most part, all the religions, I think it's the power structure, the, the upper power structure. The only people panicking is them. And the reason for that is, because anything higher than them, which can tangibly come and interfere, is a potential threat. And are looking at something that may be above the power structure, lowers them. 
right? So if they bring into the story that, well, there's these hyper-advanced, super-intelligent aliens that basically can do whatever, um, then who do we look to is actually the local power around here. And, and so if you're one of these people in the inside that has got used to being a world controller, manipulating the planet, doing whatever you want, abusing us, you know, like the story probably you don't really want in the story is higher beings that are above you and that can do other things better than you. And that's why I think if you look, there's a really good paper by... Um, I've got a name's gone that, but he, he did a TED talk about this. And he said, that if you think about it, that it's a problem for them. It's a really a problem for the system, for that hierarchical system, to throw in something that seems more powerful than them, and that would make us think, well, they don't really matter at all. You know, mm-hmm. what do the high, what do these beings think? You know, we'd like to know their opinion. They're right? not trying so hard enough. Us. They're, they're not channeling their inner Doctor Zeus or or, or uh, Darth Vader or whatever or Emperor Palpatine because I, you'd see it as an opportunity to start a new arms race and, and get rich, rich, rich. But uh, I guess that's a story well, for another day. Anyway, aren't they? Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> so I have one question for you that I'm not sure if much of the audience. So I have to give it a little bit of a, a background, but. Uh, you know, when I first connected with you, I wasn't sure that you were the same Bruce Fenton, who's the science editor for Earth Ancients, and we established that you are. Now, Earth Ancients and, and Cliff, who was on the show, um, he's not really a believer in ancient aliens. He is a believer that there were, that there were cultures uh, here before uh, with, with uh, superior technology, um, you know, human, ancient human civilizations. So... Uh, you know, and, and, and you've got a, a different theory, though I guess they can be reconciled, but, uh, you know, uh, but it seems to me that you two would have some really interesting debate. So how have you managed to maintain this, this working relationship that seems like a friendship with this, you know, big, you know, almost dogmatic, almost religious schism at the, at, at the, at the top of your chain? Sure. I mean, yeah, we definitely have talked about it. And, you know, one of the things for Cliff particularly is, you know, over the years, because he's been involved with events, you know, and conferences and uh, helping organise all those conferences. So dealing with a lot of UFO people, UFO topics and ancient aliens people. So, you know, he's had it on that. He said, so for years and years now, he said it got to a point for him where it's just, it's very frustrating because it's like, well, if you show me the aliens already or, or like, you know, I've kind of had enough of this, you know, it's, it's because it's, you know, he, as he said, he's kind of, you know, repeating the same old, you know, more UFO stories, more this, or with ancient aliens type topics, often ascribing aliens to, you know, every ancient mystery that aliens did it. And again, he, he finds that very frustrating. But where he sees, you know, I guess, like, like you, you noted, I mean, my theory is really not about pyramids or ancient sites. or So that's why there's, there's definitely not that clash as much, uh-huh. because... Yeah, because I'm not saying that the aliens came here and then they made the pyramids or Stonehenge or yeah, you're, the crystals you're, or any of that really. You're, you're literally 750,000 years uh, <laughs> older than where he starts to get concerned, probably. Yeah, and I'm not really talking so much about UFOs. And again, you know, that's the other area that he finds frustrating, the UFO thing that he never seems to go anywhere, you know, that we're still stuck in a 70-year loop of the... The disclosure's coming soon, or the aliens are landing soon. <laughs> it just hasn't progressed. And he's had years and years of dealing with that, you know, in terms of his professional life, doing the conferences and stuff. Um, but yeah, I think, he, like he said, just show me the aliens already. You know, they, <laughs> for those, he hasn't got time for it in a way. So, which I understand, you know, is, I think a lot of people eventually do get that kind of frustration with that topic. It doesn't really 
it doesn't meet its own kind of um, goals where, you know, in a year we're going to have disclosure or there's a landing next, month, you know, and that those things have been recurring for a long time in the, in the narrative. But it's a um, professional detente. You've reached a, def- a professional detente. Yeah, so I think, like you said, he finds my work different. He thinks, you know, I'm not to say if he, he actually agrees, but he definitely finds it compelling in a different way to the these stories where it's just, you know, I think I saw an alien or, you know. Yeah, but, but plus he's a, he's a pretty super mellow dude. He's very obviously very open-minded. So, uh, you know, shout out to Cliff if he's listening. And hopefully he is. Yeah. Um, so, that, that, you know, I was just wondering about that because I've been listening to his show for years. And so, in, in turn, I've listened to you for years and your, your segment uh, without actually even knowing it. All right. So, lastly, with, with all of these disclosures that it's coming to light now, uh, does that have any impact on your work? Does that make funding easier to come by? Does it make it more acceptance or, or is, just, is it, it's just different? It's, it's, they're just showing things on screens. But your work is you're you're really still focusing in on you know th- three quarters of, of a million years ago. Well, you would think with the massive shift in interest in the topic of UFOs and aliens. I mean, let's be honest. The last few years, last two three years, we've had pretty much every news organization in the world right that's talked about UFOs and often speculating whether they're aliens. So I mean. It's become a hot topic. So you you would think that they might be interested in something like my work, right? Because, you know, it's extension to it. But it's not really the case, because I think what we're seeing is a kind of a PR exercise, a kind of a, a narrative is being seeded into the media, a narrative is attached to the Pentagon, the DOD, the military, um, and the UFO topic in terms of the conventional UFO topic. So when I've actually um, reached out to sort of you know, journalists and scientists, I don't think they can really get their, their head around it. It's so sort of outside that narrative. Even though it connects, it's so outside of the current zeitgeist of just, you know, my God, UFOs are real. It's turned out the military is saying UFOs are real. But when you say, well, look, I think we've actually got debris from an alien craft, it's like the cognitive dissonance is still there for that topic. You know, I think it's too real. The way I look at it, I think it's too real. But the UFO is always just out of reach. You know, it's that light in the sky. It's that grainy photo and that everyone can handle that. I think when you say, look, I've got actual physical debris and there's genetic anomalies, it's, it's weird. You hear a different kind of cognitive dissonance and they, they kind of evaporate. Uh, it's, it's really weird. So even though you, you think logically the person with more evidence, which is like, you know, I've got no end of evidence I can give them, um, that you'd think the person with more evidence would be the story. But ironically, it's the UFO, the grainy picture and the, the far off light that, that is on every headline. So sure. I just think perhaps we're not quite far enough through whatever it is that's happening right now, this shift, where we're not quite ready to go there with it being, look, this is actually real, real, not just like UFOs exist, but this is real. There's beings that have been here and have shaped us and that have, there's remnants of their technology scattered across the ground. I mean, and that's my feeling. It's, you know, it comes to the sort of thinking that perhaps we're not quite ready to do that. But there's, I think, perhaps in the next year or two, with the things that are happening, I mean, look, the world is being transformed. I mean, it's um, you know incredible. You know, how you look at the current events, the world is definitely being transformed. I mean, there's a lot of talk of the new normal, and you know, our world shifted. I suspect somewhere in that mix that maybe people are going to start looking at this information or be drawn to this information. Uh, it may not be everyone. Maybe it's not meant for everyone. 
but those people are kind of shifting to like what the hell is going on in all this craziness you know like i do think it's a kind of revelations period you know and what does revelations mean you know it's like um the truth's being revealed like all sorts of stuff is being revealed you know, all hidden things are being revealed i believe part of that is our contacts with these beings and our parts of our ancestry that have been hidden both conventional stories of our ancestry and these unconventional stories i, I really think we're going to see it all coming out and that this work is part of that and the alternative media are interesting. You know, I'm talking. To, I don't want to say too much because I'm talking to a couple of different alternative media groups that are looking at potentially making streaming, you know, TV series about my work. So I think that at the same time we're seeing the death of old media, and those are the kind of people I've gone to. They, in fact, I don't think it's going to be them that bring this out. I think it's going to be the new media, and like you know, like people like myself as well. Radio shows and podcasts have been great. They've all, you know, loved the work. I've had, you know credit to all the radio show hosts and the podcast people, you know, not had any issue with that. And also with some of the independent, you know, news sites that have covered some of it, they've written up stories on it. Um, and, you know, like the, the, this documentary you saw, of course, which Alex at Skeptico podcast, he, he arranged that for me. So I mean, I've had support from the alternative media. Um, and now there's a couple of independent companies that are looking at maybe doing streaming shows. So I think it's part of that move away from that old monolithic media that wants to control the narrative and that, you know, is only ready to go with what the DOD and the Pentagon is saying. I, I think that needs to go. You know, that whole mess needs to go. And I don't even know if I want to work with those people. <laughs> well, that's a perfect segue to where can people find your work? Where can they and how can they support you? Yeah, I mean, um, if they look on, obviously, yeah, not that I like to use Amazon, but <laughs> Again, behind the old structures, but Amazon um, Prime for the documentary, the seven hundred eighty thousand sort of our alien, our alien story. I think I've tried a little while since I've looked. Um, and then also, if they, if they look for Bruce Fenton, they'll find that. Um, and also, yeah, on Amazon for the book Exogenesis: Hybrid Humans. But that book is available from any shop. You know, they can go into and ask a shop to get it for them um, if it's not on the shelves. Or of course, any I think any online retailer so it doesn't have to be dealing with amazon if you don't want to um i also have it you know here usually if i'm out of copies i get some more but people can contact me and request a copy of exogenesis hybrid humans um they can find me on social media let's say to be honest most of my time on twitter is about current events so i mean at the moment there's not a lot i'm saying about aliens it depends on if they want to see me ranting about the new normal and great reset otherwise you know but they can certainly find the book and the documentary and contact me if they they, they they feel that there's something pressing you know they can get hold of me through facebook or twitter twitter is um exogenesis hh my handle and obviously bruce r fenton they'll find my author page on facebook okay thank you very much thank you for the master class this was much more detailed and much more scientific than than even i was expecting so and and, and uh no, that, this was amazing. I really enjoyed it. It was very interesting. I, I, the audience knows that uh, I'm not usually quiet this much during the show, so <laughs> maybe may, may a welcome relief for them. Uh, but good, good for my voice box too, because I'm recording this in August 19th on a week where I'm doing four or five shows in one week just because of uh, uh, schedule and whatnot. But I thank you so much. Uh, keep in touch. Uh, very interested in following your work. Looking forward to continuing to hear you on Earth Ancients, but uh, 
hopefully you'll keep in touch. And then uh, should you discover more things, uh, maybe you'll visit with us again. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure. And yeah, thank you for letting me uh, rant on because it's a lot to cram in. So as I would have let you in for more questions, but no, I super appreciate that. It gives people hopefully an overview and, you know, makes them go off and have a look for themselves at some of these papers and studies and see that I'm not just saying it, it will exist. So yeah, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks very much. And, and to the audience, we will see you next time in the Garden of Doom. Thank you.